Brother Gene leading that, that hymn because it ties in perfectly with our sermon this morning and really this entire series that we're starting today. Uh, believe it or not, there are only five Sundays left in 2022, including today. Uh, and so in planning out these sermons, I thought, let's, let's look at a book of the Bible that has five chapters, and let's take one chapter each Sunday to the end of this year. And this is a study that, that I have loved uh, over the years. This is one of my favorite books in all the New Testament. And I thought this would be a perfect study for us as we try to close out this year on a positive note. Because when you stop and think about it, there is no worse feeling in the world than to go through this life wondering whether or not you're going to go to heaven. On the flip side, there's no greater joy this side of eternity living every day knowing that I'm going to heaven. And so that's really the goal of this study. If we were to piece all five chapters into one statement, that would be it. Do we really live every day believing that we're going to be in heaven? Do we believe the songs that we sing? Do we believe the passages that we read? Do we believe the prayers that we pray? That one day heaven will be our home. Because if that's not our mentality, what a horrible way to go through life. When we think about what Jesus did for us, that price has already been paid. Paid in full. And since Jesus has done his part, and if we've responded to the gospel, we've done what God has asked us to do. Why should we go by day by day wondering whether or not we're really saved? So again, I hope this study is going to be helpful. I hope it's going to bring all of us confidence, but also that it will bring us balance. To know that yes, we are in Christ, and yes, we are His people. We are saved. We're heaven bound. But all of that can be taken away if we choose to let that happen. We've got to stay faithful. We've got to be faithful unto death. But if we do what God has said to do, then we can have those great promises before us. We can have courage. We can have blessed assurance. As we kind of introduce this study, I want to talk about why we're doing this. Not just because it has five chapters, but what is our goal in this series? We need to have a goal. We need to have a purpose in this study. And here is our goal. Several points, several reasons why we want to study 1 John. Number one, and this should be true of every study. Every sermon, every sermon series, everything that we do ought to be to glorify God. How do we do that? By examining and applying the truth to our lives. I appreciate what Brother Chris said a moment ago about the grace of God. It's, it's free, but what does it do? It teaches us something, Titus 2, 11 and 12. It's free to all men. It's given to all men, but we've got to respond to that if we want to be beneficiaries of His grace. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. So by applying the truth to our lives, it can and it will transform us into who we need to be. A second reason is to, of course, increase our knowledge of the Word and the will of God. You know, it was also mentioned by Brother Clint. If we're doing anything that's amiss, we're doing anything that's not glorifying God, let us know. How's God going to let us know that? Is He going to tell us? Is he going to come to us in a dream? No, it's right here in the Word, isn't it? That's We know whether or not we're doing what God says to do if we can open up the Word of God and say, here's what God has said, am I doing it? Are we doing it according to the pattern? And that, of course, is our goal in this study as well. Increase our knowledge, know what God wants from us, and then do it. But also to gain confidence 
and our salvation. We need that and close to that to eliminate doubt. Eliminate doubt and replace it with blessed assurance. That's our goal. We don't need to have doubt. We don't need to go through wondering. I've heard someone say, well, I'll find out on the day of judgment if I'm going to heaven. It's too late. If you confess Jesus now and live for him now, he'll confess you before his father on the day of judgment. Now, if I deny him, Matthew 10, 32, by the way I live my life, then yes, I should expect to be denied. But if I'm doing what God has said to do, can I not have confidence? Does he not want me to have that blessed assurance that we just sang about? Absolutely, he does. As we dive into this, there are five chapters, as I mentioned, and I want to go ahead and give you the sermon titles for the rest of this year. <laughs> the, the next five sermon titles as we walk through these chapters. Today, we're going to look at the certainty of continual cleansing from chapter 1. When we get into chapter 2 next week, Lord willing, the responsibility, twofold responsibility, to submit to God, but also to reject sin. In chapter 3, we'll notice that we have an opportunity to destroy all doubt. God has given us that opportunity. In chapter 4, the ability to show and embrace love. That's, where, of course, where we read that God is love, but there's a response from us to His love. And then chapter 5, the serenity of eternal salvation. You should have this if you have your notes in front of you. I wanted to include all of the introduction and then give the sermon notes as we go through the actual sermon. But I want you to hold on to this. And I want to challenge you to do something. And I'm going to do it with you. Of course, Monday through Friday, five days, five chapters. Starting tomorrow to the end of the year, read one chapter per day. So Monday, tomorrow, read 1 John 1. Tuesday, chapter 2. Wednesday, chapter 3. Thursday, chapter 4. And Friday, chapter 5. And repeat that process for the rest of this year. I want to challenge you to do that. Because what that's going to do is it's going to keep us in the Word. It's going to keep us focused on this study. And as we read it throughout the week, each week, when we come back to it, it's only going to help us. So I want to challenge and encourage you to do that. And again, those are the sermon titles that we will have throughout this study. Before we dive into chapter 1, let's think about an introduction to the book of 1 John. Of course, we have the author as John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. But it's very interesting that he does not come out and say that. Very similar to the book of Hebrews. There are a lot of different ideas on who wrote Hebrews. You know what the best answer is? The Holy Spirit wrote it. Because <laughs> that's true of all 66 books, isn't it? But when we think of the evidence that we have both internally and externally, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, is the one who penned this letter as well as five books in the New Testament. The Gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. We think about the date of this. There are different views on this, but we're going to pin this toward the end of the first century, so around A.D. 90, very similar to the time of the Revelation. We think of the purpose of the book as a twofold purpose. And number one, it was to answer Gnosticism. And you might say, well, what in the world is that? The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And so this idea of Gnosticism, what there, there were these knowing ones. They had a higher sense of understanding than everybody else. And in their minds, there's no way that God could have took it on flesh. In their mind, there's no way because God is, is perfect and then flesh is, is weak and sinful. So in their minds, there's just no way that could have happened. So Jesus wasn't really in the flesh. It was just an appearance. That's Gnosticism. That's what they taught. 
and that was infiltrating the early church. And John is going to write in this letter, and if you think about it, even the gospel according to John, he's going to defeat that entire idea. Because John unequivocally tells us Jesus did come in the flesh, which of course refutes that doctrine. So that's one of the reasons uh, why he writes this. But a second purpose is that your joy may be full. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4. I am writing this that your joy may be full. Closely akin to that, that you may know that you have eternal life. If I know that I have eternal life, guess what? My joy is going to be full. People can't take your joy away from you. People can take a lot from you, but they can't take your joy. Because joy is not based on outward circumstances. Joy is based on inward peace. You think about Paul and Silas in that deep, dark prison cell in Acts 16. What were they doing? Were they moping? Were they wondering, is this really worth it? No, they were praying and singing praises to God. Can't take away the joy. Though the world may try. We think about some keys of 1 John. The key words are know, fellowship, light, and beloved. If you go through this study with me and you go through and read this on your own, look for those words, highlight them, circle them, underline them. If you're taking notes as you read, you can highlight these words and see how they all connect. And then some of the key passages, and this was kind of difficult, but these are the ones just reading through the book that really jump out. In chapter 1, of course, verses 5 through 9, as we're going to study in just a moment. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the fact that Jesus is our advocate at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 3 and verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John says we need to put it into practice. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, know whether or not it's the spirit of truth or spirit of error. Go to the standard to make sure you're going and doing what God says to do. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And chapter 5 and verse 13, you may know that you have eternal life. You continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. When we think about this study, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And it's one of encouragement. And I really hope and truly hope and pray it encourages all of us. So as we begin, let's think about the certainty of continual cleansing. I want to invite you to 1 John 1 if you're not there already. And I want us to just read chapter 1. It's only 10 verses long, but we just want to read it first. And then I want to share with you three main points from the text, and the sermon will be yours. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen. And bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. And These things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In the first place this morning, let's notice the facts regarding Jesus' deity. The facts regarding Jesus' deity. This is how John begins this letter. Notice he says, that which was from the beginning. What important fact does that present? That Jesus is not a created being. There are some religious groups, there are some doctrines built around this idea that that Jesus was a created being. But that's not true. Notice this language again. That which was from the beginning. Here's one of the main reasons why we know John is the inspired writer. Because you compare this language, what we find in the book of John. How does he begin the gospel of Jesus according to John? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. What's he emphasizing? Jesus is God. And he's always been there. He left heaven and came to earth and took on flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. Not that he was some created being. That God was caught off guard by man's sin and had to come up with some kind of plan. Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 So when we think about this language, it's important. That which was from the beginning. Second, he says, that which we have heard. This is a fact regarding Jesus that the apostles were ear witnesses of Jesus Christ. They heard the very Son of God speak. And they knew that what he taught wasn't from man. In fact, when Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, what did they say? People were astonished because he spoke as one having authority, not as one of the scribes. His teaching's different. His teaching's from heaven, isn't it? In fact, Jesus asked the question one time, the baptism of John, from heaven or from men? In other words, is my teaching from heaven or from men? You, you decide. Well, when you look at what Jesus taught, certainly it's divine, isn't it? It's from heaven. They were ear witnesses to the truth of God. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. You remember what it said in John chapter 6? This is when Jesus talks about being the bread of life. Verse 63, he says, The words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. A lot of the disciples, they, they couldn't handle it. And so Jesus turned to the twelve. He said, will you also leave? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Listen to him. You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. We're sure of this, Peter said. Why? Because of the words that he spoke. That proved, that was evidence. This is the Son of God. And so John is starting this account with these facts. Jesus has always been there. He's not a created being. They were ear witnesses, but also they were eye witnesses. Notice they said, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. John was in the audience on the Mount of Transfiguration, wasn't he? Peter, James, and John. Matthew chapter 17. And Peter's the one that spoke up. Hey, it's good for us to be here. Here's Elijah. Here's Moses. Here's Jesus. Let's build three tabernacles. But then God said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Here's Moses representing the law. Here's Elijah representing the prophets. Here's Jesus representing the standard. He says, you need to listen to him. They were all pointing to him. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what we find in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
Of course, his other passages emphasize this as well. You remember Thomas wanted to see the evidence for himself. He said, unless I see the, the, where the, the nails were, I won't believe. And here comes Jesus. He says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet do believe. And that's why all the miracles are recorded, right? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John said, if we record all the miracles, the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John 21, 25. But we have more than enough evidence that we can see through the eye of faith, Jesus is the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning there in verse 5. If you ever, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but underline or highlight the words, and was seen. It's pretty powerful. Jesus, of course, the gospel, the foundation of the gospel is laid out, that Jesus lived and died according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again, and was seen. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by 500 brethren at once. And then Paul says he was seen by me, one out of due time. Paul, of course, we're going to read about it later this afternoon in Acts 9, saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And so they were ear witnesses and they were eyewitnesses. But also notice our hands have handled. Look at all the detail that John is going into. And picture someone who is a believer of Gnosticism reading these words. When they said, oh, well, he was just a, you know, he didn't really come in the flesh. Can you get around that with this language? That which we have seen, we have heard, and our hands have handled. John 1.14, the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Can't get around that. God did come in the flesh. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. How Jesus humbled himself, he left heaven, and he took on the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. He took on flesh and blood. He went through everything like, like we go through everything. He understands. He knows what it's like to be hungry, doesn't he? He knows what it's like to hurt, to lose a loved one. Jesus knows because he lived it. And that's what makes him uniquely qualified to be our great high priest. He can sympathize with us. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Jesus is our God. He's our Lord. But understand that he did, in fact, come in the flesh. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So John is emphasizing these facts regarding the deity of Jesus. And I love this one. Eternal life was manifested to us. What's the word manifested mean? It means to make known, to bring to light. Eternal life was made known to us. What does he mean? When we looked at Jesus, we looked at eternal life. Remember the Lord's Prayer in John 17. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you and know me whom you have sent. That's eternal life. You look at Jesus, you're looking at eternity. You're looking at the possibility of living with God forever. And John says, we saw him for ourselves. We find that in John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has shown the world heaven. Heaven literally came to earth. As Jesus came in the form of a servant. Of course, we also have John 14, 8 and 9. I love, I love John 14. Of course, the first few verses, when he emphasizes that he's going to prepare a place, 
He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But you remember what Philip says? Show us the Father and it suffices us. And Jesus said, have I not been with you all this time? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I have brought heaven to earth, Jesus said. John begins this great epistle with facts regarding Jesus' deity. And we need to know these and believe these with all of our heart. Jesus, 100% deity, 100% man, fully God as he came to earth. God in the flesh. These are the facts regarding Jesus' deity. These are fundamental to Christianity. These are fundamental to our faith. If we don't believe these facts, we're going to have a hard time with the rest of this study. But you and I, by faith, through the eye of faith, can read these words and believe and know that all these things that John is writing, of course, by inspiration, is absolute truth. In the second place, we look at verses 3 through 7. I want to talk about the fellowship with God and with the godly because these two thoughts go together. Fellowship with God and with the godly. The word fellowship is an interesting word. The Greek word there is koinonia, and it means joint participation or communion. And you think about what we just did a few moments ago. As Brother Andy read from Isaiah 53, and we all took our minds back to the cross and what Jesus did, and we stopped and we partook of the bread. What were we doing? We were in communion, not only with our Lord, but with one another. As we partake of that, as we take of the cup, we're thinking about the blood of Jesus. What are we doing? We're in communion one with another. What about when we give? That's joint participation as we are in fellowship with one another. We're giving to the cause, right? We're giving to the Lord, but also as Brother Clint announced and what he was talking about with what's going on in Panama, we are in fellowship with that. We're in total agreement. We're giving to the glory of God and that these funds will be used to further the borders of the kingdom. That's joint participation. That's exactly what we find in Acts 2.42. In fact, that's the same word that we have here for fellowship. Remember what we find in Acts 2.42? Those 3,000 souls that obey the gospel. says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and in fellowship and in prayers. The early church, they were all in fellowship one with another. What was it that brought them together? It was the gospel, wasn't it? And the Lord added those who obey the gospel to the church. The called out people of God. That's who we are. And we're in fellowship with each other. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, this same language, this same word, koinonia, talking about the fellowship that we have with God, that God is faithful. But then also in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul will use this word for how they help support him. Because you remember, there were some brethren who didn't support Paul, but Paul tells the brethren of Philippi, you've always been there for me. You have supported me. And that's really the context of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's that talking about? Whether I have a lot of money or if I don't, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I found that in whatever state I am to be content, Paul said. The brethren were in fellowship as they participated in supporting Paul to go and preach the gospel. So that's the word that we have here for fellowship. Think about that word picture as we look at the different ways it's used in verses 3 through 7. It's found four different times. First, notice there is fellowship with us. As John writes, he says, you had the fellowship with us, the apostles. Have you ever thought about that? 
the apostles, Peter and John, and, and, and you go through that list. We're in fellowship with them. Why? We obeyed the same thing. We're disciples of the same Lord. One day when we all get to heaven, how awesome will it be to sit down and talk with David? Sit down and talk with John. Talk with Peter. It's amazing to think about. Fellowship with us. But notice, our fellowship, he says, is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So here's the point. If you're in fellowship with God the Father and the Son, Jesus, and I'm in fellowship with God the Father and the Son, Jesus, guess what? We're in fellowship one with another. We can have joint participation. But what's the other side of that? If you're not in fellowship with God, but I am, we're not in fellowship with one another. And unfortunately, sometimes we try to extend fellowship where God doesn't extend it. And we've got to be careful not to do that. Someone in the world, you say, well, you know, they're good and they're not far off. But listen, to be far off is to be totally lost. You, you might be right there on the fringe, but if you're not in Christ, you're lost. And I can't extend fellowship to somebody who God's not going to extend fellowship to. And that's really what's being progressed throughout this statement. So fellowship with us, fellowship is with the Father and the Son. But then notice verses 5 and 6. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, with God, but then what does John say? But walk in darkness, do we have fellowship with God? No. If God is light, and I'm in darkness, can I be in fellowship with the light if I'm in darkness? No, I can't. And that's exactly what he says. He says, you lie and you do not practice the truth. So can I extend fellowship to someone who's in darkness if I'm walking in light? No. And John wants to make sure that these Christians understand that. There are some who are coming in to say, hey, we're just like you. We believe the same God. We worship the same God. No, you don't. No, you don't. We're Christians too. Are you in Christ? Have you obeyed His gospel? Well, no. Well, then you're not, you're not a Christian. I can't be in fellowship with you then. But then we get to this passage in verse 7. If we walk in the light. Now keep in mind, God is light. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Now, we're in fellowship with God. We have fellowship one with another. Here is this concept of vertical fellowship and horizontal fellowship. What do I mean by that? I'm in fellowship with God as I live and walk according to His Word. Psalm 119, 105. But I'm also in fellowship with others who are doing the same thing. If someone's not doing that, I'm not in fellowship with them. I need to pray for that individual. I need to do my best to teach that individual the truth. Why? So they can come out of darkness and into the marvelous light of God. 1 Peter 2, 9 and following. Fellowship with us. Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with one another. All these, this, this emphasis on fellowship. You think it's important? You think it's something that John is, is emphasizing here? Yeah, of course. That's one of the great, great blessings of being able to come together and worship God. Is the fellowship that we enjoy, the fellowship meals that we have. That's one of the highlights of this congregation, in my opinion. 
I think it's one of the great things that we do here. I'm so thankful for our elders see fit for us to do that. We get to come together. We get to worship God. Then we get to go and eat and share and, and share life with each other. That's what it's all about. That's what the early church did. Acts chapter 2. And that's what we can do today as God's people. Why? Listen, none of that would matter if we weren't in fellowship with God. None of that would matter if Jesus didn't do what he did and if we didn't respond to the gospel the right way. Here's a point I want to bring out. We talked about the facts, right? The facts that are fundamental. Because of the facts, we can have faith. And because of our faith, we can have fellowship. If you take one of those out, you can't have it. You got to have all three of those. Because I can't have faith if I don't have evidence. Hebrews eleven six, Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, right? The evidence of things not seen. I've got to have faith, and that faith has got to be based on facts. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's based on evidence. John 20, 28 and following. So because of the facts and because of my faith in those facts, I can have fellowship. Continuing to think about this, we must have unity in faith, and then we can have unity in fellowship. If we're not united in the faith, we can't be united in true fellowship before God. We need to speak the same thing. We have the same mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And think about this too. Jesus prayed and died for unity. It needs to be important to me and to you. Jesus said, I pray that they all may be one as I, Father, am one with you. That sweet fellowship that the Father and the Son enjoy is the fellowship that is extended to us through the gospel. How could I possibly turn that away? And so we think then about the certainty of continual cleansing. It's based on the facts regarding Jesus' deity and the fellowship that we can enjoy with God and with the godly. Vertical and horizontal fellowship. But finally this morning, let's think about the formula the formula for continual cleansing. This is, of course, a passage that is well known, and it should be. But listen to me, out of love I say this, this only applies to Christians. This only applies to those who are in Christ. This is not being said to alien sinners. Because someone might go to this and try to justify the, Lord's, uh, the sinner's prayer. This is one of the proof texts for that doctrine. Well, here it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. That's true, but that's being said to someone who's in Christ. That's being said to someone who's in fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We can't divorce this passage from what we just read a few verses earlier. Keep it all together in its context. Let's think about this word cleanses for a moment. It comes from this Greek word katharizo. What do you hear in that? You hear the word catheter. Well, what does a catheter do? It's a cleansing agent, right? Well, that's what this, this word comes from. That's where we get that English word. Cleanses. But what's important is the tense of this word. It's a present tense active verb, which means keeps on cleansing. If we keep on walking in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us. What if I don't keep on walking in the light? The blood of Christ will not keep on cleansing me. 
This is a twofold purpose here. And I've got to make sure I'm doing my part. And I know for a fact that God will always do his part. So as we think about the formula for continual cleansing, here's where it starts. And here's where we must start. It starts with Christ's blood. If you take the blood of Jesus out of the equation, you have no cleansing. And you have no continual cleansing. There is no salvation apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sing that. We need to believe that because the Bible teaches that. Christ's blood. Leviticus 17, 11, The life of the flesh is in the blood. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he said, This is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Did you know that same phrase in Matthew 26, 28 is the same exact phrase in Acts 2, 38? For the remission of sins, not because of. Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sins. What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. It's all because of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 18. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7. Not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 19. To him who loved us and washed us in his own blood, if it were not for the blood of Jesus, there would be no cleansing. When we think about this formula, we must begin with Christ's blood. But then second, we need to emphasize this. This is a part of walking in the light. It's confession of sins. And you might say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. How can I be walking in the light and still sin? Is that not exactly what John says? If we say we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. Truth's not in us. It's not about sinless perfection. It's about going in the right direction. That's what we're talking about when it comes to continual cleansing. This is a part of it. He says, if we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, that's part of it. And I find it powerful that John says, we. John's an apostle. Can we sit back and say, John's not included in that. Surely he wouldn't be messing up. Yeah. If we say that we have no sin, we lie. So what are we supposed to do when we mess up? There's a difference between a state of sin and an act of sin. I can be living in a state of sin, and if I am, I need to get out of the sinning business. But if I am faithfully walking the lie and I mess up from time to time, here's the second law of pardon. Here's how I handle it. It starts with the blood of Jesus Christ. The same blood that washed away our past sins is the same blood that has the power to keep on cleansing us as we keep on walking in light, which includes confession of sins. That's exactly what we find in Psalm 51, isn't it? Remember what happened with David? David sinned. There's no doubt about it. 2 Samuel chapter 11. He saw Bathsheba. James chapter 1, 13 and following came into effect. He saw it. That lust moved him to, to engage in that sinful activity. He commits adultery. Then Uriah, he brings him home and he gives him something to drink. Book of Habakkuk teaches that that's a sin. Woe to him who gives his neighbor drink. So here's two strikes against him. And then he has Uriah sit on the front lines and murdered. So he's guilty of adultery, giving his neighbor drink, and having somebody murdered. David is guilty, no doubt. 
Nathan comes to him. We all need a Nathan in our life to come and say, you are the man. You've messed up. What did David do? This is an example of what it means to walk in the light of God. David said, I have sinned. He didn't try to blame somebody else. He owned up to it and he confessed it. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. He says, I acknowledge that my sin is ever before me and against you and you only have I sinned. Now, of course, David sinned against his own body. He sins against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, all sin is against God. David recognized that. So what did David say? Purge me with hyssop. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Cleanse me from my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's an example of a man after God's own heart. When you and I as Christians mess up and we sin and we stumble, we think something we shouldn't think, we say something we shouldn't say, we don't do something we should do, sins of omission, sins of commission, whatever the case may be, we need to handle it God's way. And here's the formula. The blood of Jesus is that cleansing agent. But I've got to do my part based on this text and be willing to confess my sins. Here's the third point. As we think about the formula, it's the character of God. You know, people will let you down, won't they? People say, I'll be there. I'll do this for you. People will let you down. But God never will. When God makes a promise, He is going to keep it. And John emphasizes that God is faithful and just. Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith, for He who promised is faithful. There are so many times, and I've had conversations with Christians, seasoned Christians, who say, I, I, I believe that I'm forgiven. I believe that the blood of Jesus washed away my sins, but I have a really hard time thinking that I'm truly saved and I'm truly forgiven by God. If I understand this verse correctly, if I feel like that, that's on me, not on God. Because He is faithful and just to forgive us. When God says, you do this and I'll forgive you, He means it. So if there's something lacking, it's not on God's part, it's on mine. He is faithful and just. That is the very character of God. If He ceased to be faithful, He would cease to be God. If He ceased to be just, He would cease to be God. But He is faithful and He is just. There has to be a price paid for sin, and that price was paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if I handle my sin problem God's way, when I mess up as a Christian, I confess it, His character says, I'm going to forgive you. You confess it and you repent of it, like David did in Psalm 51. He says, you will be forgiven. You will be cleansed because there is complete cleansing. God never does anything halfway. God never does anything halfway. Sometimes as humans, we do. We don't always put our best foot forward, but God does. Complete, not partial, complete cleansing. Notice the language, to forgive us and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Someone says, I don't know if he can really forgive me of what I did those 20 years ago. That was really bad. 
I don't know if God could ever really forgive me of that, and I struggle forgiving myself. I need to let go and let God. And I need to trust in His faithfulness and His justice, focus more on His power than my failure. Let me look to God. Let me look to His Word and say, this is what He says to do. Let me do just that and trust in Him to take care of the rest. Psalm 103 and verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19, You have forgotten, you have cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You go as high as the heavens, as far east, as far west, and as low as the depths of the sea. That's how far God has removed your transgressions from His mind. It's as if it never happened. I can't give you any more good news than that. I am thankful that God remembers my sin no more. I'm thankful that all of my sins are at the bottom of that baptistry in Cordova, Tennessee, when I obeyed the gospel at 18 years old. I'm thankful that the blood of Jesus is that cleansing agent because not enough good I could ever do could take away my sins. But Christ's blood, confession of sins, and the character of God, you combine those three and you have complete cleansing. Why? Because the Bible tells, tells me so. We think about this powerful, powerful truth, and this is how we sum it up. If we keep on walking in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ will keep on cleansing us. This morning, if you're a Christian and you doubt your salvation, if you're a Christian and you wonder, am I really saved? Has the blood of Jesus really cleansed me? Take a closer look at this passage that we've studied this morning. You can know that you know that you know that you're saved and you're heaven bound. If you don't know that, don't leave here today with any doubt in your mind or in your heart. It may be the case there's someone here who's not a Christian and you've never obeyed the gospel, but you look at this formula and you say, you know, I would love to have that peace. I would love to have the joy of knowing I'm heaven bound. Guess what? You can have it. You can have it. Because Jesus died for you to make it possible. So what must you do to be saved? What must you do to become a Christian? Have faith. That's where it all starts. Recognize that I'm lost and I need a Savior. And I have faith and believe that Jesus is the one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that I must submit to. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God in Romans 10, 17. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He died for me on the cross. John 3, 16, John 8, 24. Be willing to repent of sin. Say, I'm wrong and I want to be right. I've got to change my mind and change my life. That's repentance. And God commands all men everywhere to do it, Acts 17, 30. Then confess with the mouth, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Acts 8, 37, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then be baptized, immersed in water, come in contact with the blood of Jesus, have all of your sins washed away. Rise to walk in newness of life, and as we've studied this morning, have the certainty of continual cleansing. If you keep on walking in the light till you draw your last breath, you can have blessed assurance and confidence that heaven will be your home. If you don't have that confidence, if you don't have that assurance, please don't leave without making sure your heart is right with God. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing?